Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Today's podcast is presented by Pago. Pago is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Pago. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. But apply today, become a member, and really be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-T-G-O dot C-O. And don't forget to tell your listeners to add Monster Legend Podcast in the How to Hear About Pago section of this application. Okay. So don't forget to mention me when you sign up, people. Hey, guys. This is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. And you're listening to the Monster Legend Podcast. In the dark of the night Comes a stranger in life to guide you All along with twisted words in your mind Darkish goals And the whispering dreams Blow a dark haunting voice Wild through you Telling tales young and old I hope that you enjoy the show Welcome to Monster Legend Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner. And today we have a special guest co-host, Miss Corinne Webben. Miss Corinne. Hello, Miss Corinne. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me on. I'm very welcome. To have. So, who are you, Corinne? Uh, so, I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado. I specialize in medieval and renaissance history. And I'm also the host of the Enchanted podcast on the history of magic. Ooh. Magic. That's... So when did magic, like, history start? When did that come up? Oh, I, in all honesty, I think magic has been around as long as people have been around. Uh, it's because there are so many things that I think we can define as magic. It's pretty much any ritual or action that uh gives us access to supernatural powers to change the world in some way uh so there is a lot i I think um probably as soon as people started developing language and ritual and art and things like that they had magic it goes back to like like for me like before um civilization Probably, yeah. I I think um, there's probably some evidence in the Paleolithic era, so sort of before humans settled into cities and developed modern technologies, um, that I think there is some evidence for magic. Certainly, um, there's evidence of religious ideas, and whether or not we call that magic, um, I think kind of depends on the perspective of the historian. 
Yeah. So, um, what kind of, tell about your podcast, Enchanted Podcast. Uh, so the podcast started um, because I'm teaching a, a course on the history of magic this semester. Uh, awesome. And I was looking for a podcast that was sort of a storytelling podcast about different magical topics and couldn't find one. And so decided <laughs> if I can't find one uh, and this is clearly what I want to listen to, then I got to make it. Some on was like, I want to do this. Can't find <laughs> anything on this. Yeah. So let's make it. <laughs> I, I honestly think that's how most podcasts start. <laughs> I think the host was like, well, I wanted to listen to this podcast and it didn't exist. <laughs> Do you find like different um, regions have different histories on magic? Um, yeah, I think so. I uh, have just started to kind of branch out beyond Europe. Europe is my area of specialization. Yeah. Um, so it's what I'm used to dealing with. But uh, my co-producer... Uh, a few episodes ago pitched to me an idea on uh, Empress Chen of Wu, uh, who was convicted of sorcery. And so we ended up doing that as an episode and that was really fun. Um, so I'm, uh, I think I'm in the middle of putting together an episode right now on uh, a medieval sorceress in Africa. Uh, hmm. So yeah, so I'm getting to branch outside of Europe, outside of my own area, which is nice. Um, what's like the defining factor in magic in Europe? Oh, um, I think the thing that tends to make magic sort of special in Europe is that it's, it's almost always somehow involved with religion. Hmm. Um, in ancient Greece, uh, you find curse tablets, for example, that, um, often invoke the names of goddesses or uh, demigoddesses or um, in medieval magic, which is kind of what I'm used to looking at most of the time, uh, there are all kinds of spells and incantations that require someone to recite the Lord's Prayer, for example, or um, require a consecrated communion wafer as part of the ingredients of a potion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the things that kind of separates magic out a little bit in Europe, um, is that it always tends to be kind of closely associated with ideas about religion. You think um, like Stonehenge, like certain places in Europe, like um, Stonehenge be as like virtual places for magic? Yeah, um, I mean, certainly there are modern magical groups and modern religious groups as uh, a central location during the year for their rituals. Yeah, I think um, certainly there are theories that exist that these kind of sacred sites are built either on uh, sort of focal places for power or that the architecture itself creates a focal place for power. Um, certainly, I think if you go to Stonehenge and you see it, you get this sense of something special, something supernatural about it. I think it's like a count. Was it? They say it was like a calendar or something. Yeah, it seems to be aligned. I think, if I remember this right, I think with the winter solstice. 
Yeah. Um, and the same thing is true with, um, for example, Newgrange in Ireland, um, which mm -hmm. is another kind of Neolithic structure uh, that also kind of has this special alignment with the, the sun on the winter solstice. Great. Oh, do you think you also learn like, like how do you know that? I guess, or just like they just got lucky, I guess. <laughs> I mean, or they were really excellent engineers. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there are you know lots of things in the ancient world, especially in the Neolithic period, that are really impressive. You know, in terms of their structure, you have these big kind of we call it um, cyclopean stones or cyclopean masonry. This kind of massive stones that you see structures built out of. Um, yeah, I think they had to have at least an instinctive understanding of physics and engineering to be able to build those. Like, oh, all guys, and people are like, oh, it's aliens. Like, I don't think it's aliens. I think we're, <laughs> I think people are very smart. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's it's kind of a modern prejudice, right? Yeah. We get to tell ourselves like we are modern and advanced and rational and we are awesome and we're not like those people in the past. Um, but yeah, I think, I, so I think the idea that it's aliens kind of helps us feel better about being modern, you know, yeah. being superior to our ancestors. Um, but no, they're, I think ancient peoples were pretty technologically advanced yeah. um, and it, at least, like I said, had an instinctive understanding. I think they're probably all like us, except with their technology they had available. Mm -hmm. So, do you like, um, you ever been in West Virginia? I have not. Uh, what is West Virginia like this time of year? Oh, it's uh, hot, I think. I've okay. been there. <laughs> I've been there myself. If I have it, I've like passed through it, you're going somewhere else. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I've, I've even been, I've been to um, areas in the South, like I've been to North Carolina um, and otherwise I've, um, most of the conferences I go to and stuff are in the Eastern seaboard. So like Boston and New York and things like that. Uh, so yeah, I haven't been to West Virginia yet. You ever been to Boston in like the winter? Yes. Uh, one of the freezing. conferences that I go to is always the weekend after New Year's. Uh, so it's always in January. It's always super cold. And yeah, um, one year it was in Boston and it, I think it snowed the entire time and it was so cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was there one winter. I've like 10 jackets on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Chicago is like that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, walking through Chicago in January. It's like you all the layers don't help. Like just once the wind comes in off the water, you're done. <laughs> How cold does it get in Colorado? Um, it can get pretty cold here. Uh it's like we've definitely had I, I've lived here for about ten years now. We've definitely had days that were like minus twenty degrees, minus, you know, twenty-five degrees. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's rare that that happens. Um, usually in the winters, I mean, we can have really cold snaps. We'll have like highs in the single digits. Um, but it's weird because it doesn't feel super cold. I think because the air's, we're up in the mountains and the air's so dry here. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't feel quite as cold, I think, as when you're like on the eastern seaboard and all that damp air is coming in. Was it weird like being on the higher elevation? Yeah, it, it takes some getting used to. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, when I first moved in, uh, I remember like carrying moving boxes and having to like pause and take a rest on the stairs and kind of breathe for a second before I could like finish the trip. So, yeah. So what kind of like, um, speaking of magic and medieval folklore, what do you think about the Arthurian legends? Oh, I love the Arthurian legends. Um, I just got to talk about, in the latest uh, episode of Enchanted, I got to kind of name drop uh, the Arthurian legends because uh, I talk about the Fisher King, um, the idea of this king who's like too wounded to govern and all he can do is kind of sit and fish and he has to wait for a knight to find a cure for him. Um, and I use that kind of as an analogy for King Henry VI, the beginning of the Wars of the Roses, who um, for reasons we still don't understand, kind of seems to go catatonic for a while uh, and can't govern the country and kind of his enemies get to gather their power and that ends up creating the Wars of the Roses. That being French and England. Only fight like, was that being France and England? Um, but so, only fight a lot. They like hate each other for like. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so Henry the Sixth uh, is ruling at the very end of the Hundred Years' War, which actually is a hundred and sixteen years long, uh, and it's a war that spanned from the fourteenth to the fifteenth centuries over who gets to be king of France. Um, both the King of England and the King of France are descended from French royalty, and so both have a potential claim to the French throne. Uh, and so there's this century and a quarter long war between the two of them uh, over territories in France. And ultimately, largely thanks to Joan of Arc, uh, the English lose. They slowly lose territory until all they hold is the tiny port city of Calais in northern France. Uh, and that, according to all accounts, that uh, news of that loss of this massive amount of territory is maybe what sent Henry VI uh, kind of into his illness. I can see that. I'll be like, stressed out. <laughs> Real bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're the king who lost these holdings that the kings of England have had for like 300 years, uh, yeah, not a good look. <laughs> Who's the son? Uh, Henry the Sixth son was named Edward. Edward, yeah. Uh, yeah, and he sadly he gets killed in battle. Oh no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I think he like like he reigned for like a few years. I think he got killed in battle. I think. Yeah, he's named um, kind of in the midst of his father's illness. He's named the new kind of prince regent. Uh, but yeah, ends up getting killed in battle, and um, that's when the York forces uh, of Edward IV kind of take over England forcibly. They stage a coup, essentially, uh, and name Edward IV the new King of England. Uh, and of course, then there's a dispute between the people who support Henry VI and say he's actually still king, and the people who support this new kind of younger, fitter king, Edward IV. Like new king probably more technically the king because he got passed on and his son died and, and he came uh, 
I mean, yeah, once you're, you know, once God has chosen you as king of England, you know, yeah. you're, you're kind of still king until you die. Yeah. Um, there is an account uh, that says when Edward uh, kind of won his last victory against Henry the Sixth forces, um, he rode into London. Henry had already been kind of seized again and put in the Tower of London. Uh, and Edward rides into London, and then that night, Henry VI mysteriously and suddenly dies in the tower. Uh -huh. uh, and suddenly Edward yeah. is unopposed. So. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. And... yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, I think Tower England, there was um, a lot of people there who died. Mm. Yeah, the Wars of the Roses go on for generations. Um, at some point, Edward dies, his younger brother Richard takes over and becomes uh, the the infamous Richard III, uh, who also quite possibly assassinates his political rivals in the tower. Uh, and at the end of all of this, it's Henry Tudor who wins, who becomes Henry VII, and that, of course, is Henry VIII's father. Uh, and Henry so, yeah. goes on a rampage of... Right. <laughs> Yeah, Mary Henry's. Yeah, Henry's subjects are largely safe, just not his wives. Yeah. <laughs> like, they have problems with like dating really young girls. Yeah, yeah, a couple of them were questionably young. <laughs> yeah. So I've heard of um, the Mothman. I I have heard like. So I watched the movie oh, yeah. <laughs> like many, many years ago. Uh, and that is the only thing I've heard uh, of the Mothman. But uh, I would love to hear, if you have knowledge of the Mothman, I'd love to hear about it. Um, the first recorded Mothman sighting took place on November 12th, 1966. I wasn't even, I think my mom was like eight years old and my dad wasn't even born yet. I wasn't even a thought at all. Oh. Um, five men were in a cemetery preparing a grave for burial. They saw something they couldn't explain. Lifting off from a nearby tree was a brown winged creature. The man held to the pack that lifted off beyond the trees. No bird, but it was humanoid. But why were yeah. they burying it? That's weird. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture and that's super freaky. <laughs> yeah. Um, the creature was sighted in many places across West Virginia and our surrounding states. Uh, but the largest number of signs happened near the old West Virginia Ordnance Works, an area known by locals as the TNT area. West Virginia Ordnance Works is a band ammunitions to north of Point Pleasant, West Virginia that dates back to the World War II. Silly took its operation manufacturing ammunition and dynamite. The surrounding area is mostly forest dotted with numerous grassy clearings and thick concrete dooms called igloos that were used to store barrels of gunpowder. Areas also riddled with abandoned tunnels, most of which have collapsed and sealed off or become flooded with water. Uh, wildlife sanctuary and the clinic wildlife management now encompasses the area. In 1979, fishermen in the TNT area reported that chemicals have been left to seep into ponds, causing it to be labeled environment, environmental disaster. By the year 1983, 
AT&T area was among the country's most polluted sites. Well, that's awful. Was there ever like, um, pollution from like all the dead bodies from all the wars in Europe? Um, there are some stories like there's, uh, there's a manuscript from one of the crusades that kind of shows them launching pieces of bodies like via catapult into a city. Uh, and there are a couple of accounts of that happening. And some people, uh, it happened kind of in the mid 14th century and some people blamed that for uh, the bubonic plague coming through Europe. Uh, so there are some stories about that. Certainly battlefields must have been horrendous uh, in the middle ages. Um, and yeah, definitely there are accounts during the plague of kind of them having trouble disposing of all of the bodies in a sanitary way uh, and that may be affecting sanitization in some of these cities I don't, like I don't know if it's like the ideal like, what we think models were like or actually whatever like but it seemed like this like just run at each other oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's I mean it was hand-to-hand combat so probably pretty rough um I mean, I think modern films have done a pretty good job of, you know, Braveheart, for example, kind of tried to get at this kind of gritty hand-to-hand, like, combat uh, and show what it might have been like. Uh, So I think films are getting better at showing it. Certainly Game of Thrones had, like, a giant kind of army-to-army battle. Uh, But yeah, they didn't develop uh, gunpowder or munitions or anything like that until much, much later. And so your range troops are archers and everything else is all cavalry and infantry. Yeah, like, that's a good thing they had armor in. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Then the, then the crossbow happened and like, oh no. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, the crossbow, siege engines, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was here in the TNT area on the cold night of November 15th, 1966. Three days after this first sighting took place, two young couples were encountered a bizarre creature. Roger and Linda Scarberry were driving Roger's back 57 Chevy Bel Air um, oh, with Steve and Mary Millette through the area around midnight. And Linda noticed unbelievably two large glowing red eyes in the darkness behind the old North Power plant and screen. They soon learned that these eyes belonged to something that looked freakish, frankly human, about seven feet tall wings folded against his back. Roger stalled in the road for a minute, expecting the strange creature. Horror realized immediately that their spectral was an ordinary bird. True horror began, however, when the creature spread its wings and pursued them down the highway to the Point Pleasant city limits at speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour. The horror arrived in town, startled and confused, and with no sign of the mysterious bird that chased them, Roger parked his car at the edge of town and discussed their encounter. Eventually deciding that what they saw was nothing more than a bird in an attempt to face their fears, they again drove towards the TNT area. It wasn't long before they saw the creature again, apparently waiting on them side Route 62. The couple now realized that their stalker was no bird, but in an instant that the car's headlights landed on the creature, it lifted vertically into the air with tremendous speed and disappeared above the tree line. This time, when they arrived into town, went to the Mason County Courthouse and told the story to Sheriff George Johnson and Deputy Miller Halstead. 
Two hours later, city police began investigating the area, one to causing one turn of the ended. Next day, a press conference was held, and the local press began printing on the story, causing others to come forward with previous and future sightings. This was the major event that started it all the November 16th issue of the Point Pleasant Register. Strange encounter to be brought to the public eye with the headline, Couple Sees Man-Sized Birds, Creature Something. The strange encounter in the TNT area was a harrowing experience for everyone involved. And on the morning of November 15th, 1966, Linda Scarberry was rushed to the hospital by her father after experiencing a nervous breakdown. On the phone, um, Roger Scarberry stated, I'm a hot girl, I just scared, but last night I was we're getting out of there. Oh crazy. <laughs> um what do you think about the I think there was a there was an author? A king author. Oh, that's a really good question. Um I've heard a lot of arguments for and against. I think, I mean, one of the most convincing arguments that I've heard is the idea of um, kind of at the end of the Roman era in Britain, uh, there may have been a, a military commander of some kind that kind of united people together to fight off invaders. Um, but yeah, I, I think probably there was once a, a figure like King Arthur. I don't know if it was the King Arthur that we tend to read about in the Arthurian legends. Probably those are, you know, like many legends, those are kind of taking reality and kind of uh, building it up to something grander. So I don't know if there was a King Arthur in the way that we think of King Arthur. I think there probably was a, a high king that united Britain for a little bit uh, in order to kind of create peace. Yeah. What about Robin Hood? Oh, I think that's another good one. <laughs> I don't, there are so many medieval stories that, that it kind of makes me wonder if there was in fact somebody like that. Um, we don't have any records for a kind of woodland bandit at the actual time of like King Richard and Prince John. Um, I'm not entirely sure how it and the legend of Robin Hood ended up getting located at that particular moment. Um, but yeah, definitely there are stories about kind of bandits robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. And um, it's quite possible, especially in the 14th century, that kind of era of the Hundred Years War and um, uh, of the Wars of the Roses, certainly those created lots of hardships for subjects in both France and England. And I can see the appeal of, you know, somebody uh, maybe robbing wealthy travelers for their riches and then using that to kind of feed their village or their city. So probably there's there were figures like that. Do you think, um, which movie do you think had a better way of displaying that time? Like the one with uh, Russell Crowe or the one with the uh, space from the 80s? Oh, is it the Kevin Costner one? Yeah, the Kevin Costner one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, I, so I've, I've seen them both. I actually teach them both 
um, mm -hmm. in one of my classes. And I personally, my preference is for the Kevin Costner one. I'll always <laughs> watch that one. It's not like a, it. yeah, it's not a good film, but it's fun to watch. Fun. Uh, and I, in terms of accurate depiction, I don't know, they could both kind of have pros and cons. Yeah. Um, you know, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves kind of plays a lot with this idea of um, Morgan Freeman's character, Azim, who's uh, a Muslim character, that he's kind of more technologically advanced uh, in the midst of this, you know, backwards medieval England. Um, and certainly that that has a grain of truth in it, that the Islamic world would have been more technologically advanced. Yeah. Um, like mathematically, they're pretty... Yeah, yeah, they've got access to, you know, all the ancient Greek and Roman engineering and mathematical texts. Um, and the, the in terms of the look of it, I think the Russell Crowe one does a slightly better job uh, of what things might have looked like and what people's homes and what a castle might actually have looked like. Um, but that, like, there are still issues, like there's this whole big battle scene in the, the Russell Crowe one where it looks like D-Day. Like there's a bunch of like landing boats that they've somehow created for the Middle Ages uh, that end up like running up on the beach, uh, which is super weird. So it, I think, um, I don't know, I really like medieval movies, but one of my kind of big beefs with them is the hero in medieval movies is always the guy who is modern. He's the guy who, you know, wants democracy and tolerance and freedom and um you know if you think of braveheart right he's all about like freedom and nationalism and you know bringing power to the people of scotland um same thing with robin hood robin hood's almost always depicted as uh, a champion of democracy and economic equality versus this tyrant um and it's interesting because it's always the hero is always the person who's the least medieval in the film the villains are the ones who actually have kind of proper medieval attitudes. That like there are haves and there are have-nots, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And we're all supposed to, you know, do our part in this system. Um, so it's it's always interesting to me that the hero in medieval movies is the guy who's most like us, and the villain is always the guy who's most like the actual Middle Ages. Um, speaking of the medieval systems, what do you think caused like the fall of the feudal system? Oh, uh, I think Vikings helped. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the the beginnings of the feudal system kind of exist at the very end of the Roman Empire, um, as the economy of the Roman Empire is kind of falling apart. Um, one of the ways that the government tried to get people to kind of go work these farms out in the countryside um, was they kind of gave these estates to wealthy Romans and then convinced farmers and convinced other people in the city, other laborers, to go out to those villas and work them. Um, but over time, those farmers, those workers, kind of um, lost any kind of bargaining leverage they once had. It gets even worse when Germanic tribes start to invade into the Western Roman Empire 
and everybody needs safety now. So they look toward their landlord to protect them and provide them with safety. And in return, their landlord may, charges them rent, essentially in the form of their labor. And that's kind of the beginning of feudalism right there, um, where there's this sort of military aristocracy uh, and their job is to protect the peasantry and the peasantry's job is to work for them. Uh, so I think it kind of goes all the way back to the, you know, fourth and fifth centuries. Then we got like a Viking start, like train section though. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get when you get the development of castles and walls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Once we get to like the eighth, ninth, 10th centuries, yeah. um, that's when you get Viking invasions and uh, all kinds of other invasions in various parts of Europe. And yeah, I think the less safe it gets to be in the countryside, the more dependent people become on their local lord to protect them. Uh, and the more those local lords need to like band together. So yeah, I think it's really kind of invasions and the need for safety and the need for protection that kind of creates the world that becomes the feudal system. I don't really have that, like a castle that everyone can get behind. Like it's really like a Viking invasion here. Really yeah, I mean, if you look at early medieval castles, uh, it's called a Mott and Bailey castle, and they, yeah. they don't look anything like what we would think of as a castle. Um, the stuff that we tend to think of when we think of a castle, like a fairy tale castle, is all from the later Middle Ages. Um, early medieval castles were like a keep on top of a dirt hill, yeah. <laughs> like with a wall built around it, and that was good enough. <laughs> Where do you think that the like legends of dragons came from? Oh, I've heard a bunch of really cool theories. Because um, so many different civilizations have some form of dragon. I mean, I, dragons in the Middle Ages represent a lot of things, but I think usually in like Old English literature, like the dragon in Beowulf, for example, represents, uh, yeah, represents like a king who doesn't share his power. Like if you look at Beowulf, the king in Beowulf is King Rothgar, and he's nicknamed Rothgar the Ring Giver because whenever he and his men, you know, sack a place and get treasure, he's really careful to generously redistribute that treasure to his warriors. Um, and so a king who just keeps treasure all for himself and kind of sits on it, really kind of destroys the economy of his kingdom, you know, or his yeah. tribe. Um, and so I think that's what dragons kind of come to represent is, you know, a dragon gathers a horde of treasure together and then guards it and doesn't let anybody else come near it. So I think dragons kind of represent bad kings in that way. Um, in terms of the actual shape of a dragon, I've heard lots of different theories. Um, one of the more convincing ones is that, because all dragons in any civilization kind of have similar features, right? They've got a long body, they have kind of a, a cross between like a lizard and a lion head. Um, sometimes they have wings. Uh, and so it's the explanation I heard was it's all the stuff you notice first about predators. So it has like the yeah. body of a snake, 
Uh, it's got the talons of like a bird of prey, and it's got like a face similar to uh, a lion or a tiger. So it's it's all the things like you would freak out about if you're sort of uh, primitive man out in the grassland somewhere. <laughs> Um, so a dragon becomes like a combination of all of these types of predator. What was it? It was a a monster that Beowulf broke his arm or something. Oh, Grendel. Grendel. Do you yeah. think Grendel was like the other king's like son? Oh, or? I yeah, I have heard that that theory, and I like it because yeah. yeah, Grendel Grendel definitely represents. Um, I think he represents a couple of things. One is definitely like a disruption to the the peace and social order, because um, he keeps coming in and like destroying people. Uh, yeah, I and I think Grendel also kind of represents the reasons that we as early medieval people don't go to the forest and don't go into the swamp and into terrible things live there. So I think Grendel also kind of represents the danger of of the world outside of civilization. Um, yeah, Beowulf tears his arm off in a really uh, graphic and kind of awesome scene. Uh, but yeah, one of the things that's fun about Be Beowulf is not necessarily Grendel, it's Grendel's mother. Yeah. Um, Beowulf defeats Grendel pretty handily, but then he's got to like go down into the cave and face Grendel's mother, who is super dangerous. How I forget how did he Beowulf deal with her mother? I forget if he killed her. Did he kill? Did he kill her? And there's then then later on there's a dragon. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He kills both Grendel and Grendel's mother. Um, and then, kind of later on in the story, he ends up fighting the dragon. Uh, and actually, the dragon ends up killing him. I think the dragon bites him, scratches him, something, and kind of poisons him. Uh, so he manages to kill the dragon, but it's the last thing he does. Uh, and then that's kind of the end of the story. So, and I I think it's really interesting that the poet, whoever wrote it, sung it for the first time, yeah. decided to make that the ending of the story, that he defeats the dragon, but the dragon also kind of defeats him. Um, and I, I always wondered if a dragon represents a bad king, I always wonder if that's... Uh, you know, kind of a metaphor for maybe Beowulf starting to become a bad king, maybe starting to become too greedy, and he he figures it out, but he figures it out too late. Makes, makes a lot of sense. I think it's like a mirror of the old, like the king before him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're like I was reading like monster, like watching that monsters and myths show on Netflix about. Oh yeah. They were talking about how like, the forest in literature and how it's like a you're saying it's unknown it's mysterious it's not it's like a, yeah it's not civilization so we get stories yeah. like from Brothers Grimm and all that mm -hmm. yeah like, historians oh sorry go ahead <laughs> go ahead uh, I was just gonna say um, historians talk about it in terms of center and periphery um, so the center is safe, right? The center is yeah. where civilization is and where we all are and everything is fine and secure and safe there and it's all contained. Um, and then there's the periphery, there's the borderlands, 
um, places that are the forest or the swamp or the seashore, or the river, um, which or have like, their own dangers. Like that, that literal like wall up in Northern England, like past yeah. that. And it was like, oh, there's monsters and giants there. Don't go past that wall. Yeah. Yeah. You've got Hadrian's wall, which kind of marks the, the northernmost point of the Roman Empire. And yeah, past that, it's it's all Celts. Don't go up there. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, you kind of when you see old maps and you see kind of in the edge of the water, the kind of here there be dragons, yeah. uh, right? Or here there be monsters symbol. Yeah, that there's this idea that the center is safe and the periphery is always dangerous. And to a certain extent, that's true, right? I mean, if you're a medieval peasant, the forest is in fact actually dangerous. Um, you know, there are predators in there, you can get lost, uh, all kinds of stuff can happen to you. And so I think it becomes the place where we locate monsters. The monsters, I think, are symbols of the real dangers that the forest or the river or the swamp or the bog represent. Like wolves. Like wolves are real bad medieval times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, like, wolves. Europe used to have lions at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, no way. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, there's like lions and wolves. Like, right. <laughs> the forest is awful. Why would I ever go to the forest? Right. Uh, yeah, and you know, bogs and rivers can be tricky. Um, you know, so yeah, I think, I think the monsters become a way to explain why some people go to these places and never come back. Um, you know, and it's just because those places are super dangerous. Definitely. Would you rather? Um, come up to a wolf or a lion in a forest. Oh. I mean, probably a wolf. <laughs> like, a wolf is smaller, at least. Yeah. Um, the only problem is, like, you don't come across a wolf in the yeah, forest, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my money's on the the predator either way. I'm not yeah. entirely sure that like me and a stick is going yeah. to get there. Yeah. Don't know. Well, if they're like twenty wolves or like a six hundred pound lion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Either way, my best bet is just to climb the tree and stay there. <laughs> I was like listening to this, like. The Brothers Grimm have like collected stories. Pretty impressive. How do you got them all together? Yeah, I love, I have a big collection of like Grimm fairy tales and I love their stories. Um, they're so cool. And yeah, they, they do kind of have all these themes of like the clever peasant who gets, you know, tricks their way out of trouble or um, or like you were saying, the fact that the forest always represents this place where the characters are definitely going into danger. Yeah. Uh, Hansel and Gretel. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites. I really must like really like. I don't know if it happened here in real life, but like, oh, that mom and is it a stepmom? Yeah, I think it's their step. I think it's. Uh, it kind of depends on the story, but I've heard mostly their stepmother. It's like, you're an awful person, really. Right. I So here's a question. Do you think the witch is the stepmother? Definitely. 
I think she's <laughs> definitely the stepmother. <laughs> or her sister or something. Right. <laughs> They're definitely working together. <laughs> yeah, because it's like the witch dot. They burn the witch and the oven and, and like the mom's not, stepmom's gone for some reason. Yeah, the the best versions of the story are the ones where like they they like throw the witch in the oven and they kill her and then they go back home and the stepmother's just like missing. missing yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, I'll probably like I'll probably like counts us eating everything. <laughs> well, yeah, I got a gingerbread house. Yeah, definitely like once the witch is taken care of, definitely eat the house. <laughs> And it was like, I think there's a, a scene, a movie, or read something like the witch dies, and it turns out the house was like under a spell to make it look food, but it was actually real nasty, like bugs or something. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, speaking of creatures, um, Creature would be seen throughout the next 13 months in Point Pleasant. It was estimated that there were over 100 sightings within this time. Though these were unavoidable reports, an actual number of reported sightings may be quite lower. Mothman witnesses were also harassed by the men in black who wanted them not to speak about the creature. What? Um, the strange sightings all seem to culminate the collapse of the Silver Bridge on December 15th, 1967. Tell me more about that. Do you remember that? Was that a big thing? Silver Bridge falling? I I mean, I don't remember it. Um, but at the same time, I can see a bridge falling being a giant deal. Yeah. Um, Something else. Yeah, definitely before my my time. <laughs> uh, rush hour traffic. I guess it was a thing. Badly oh. engineered. They put traffic on it and it collapsed. Yeah, I know that's um, part of the plot. So there's a movie that came out in the early 2000s, I think, uh, yeah. called The Mothman Prophecies. And I think that was part of the plot was that people would see like the figure of the Mothman uh, and then they were having visions like premonitions of things that would happen and one of them was that a bridge would collapse. That was a big thing. Like they were saying like Mothman's like a bunch of warning system for bad events. Yeah. Um, Many similar cryptids and creatures have been seen worldwide. Signs are similar to Mothman in many ways, including the fact that most of them seem to be heralds of impending disasters. Some of the places Mothman or its fellows have visited include a mine in Fredberg, Germany, where Mothman-like creatures scared miners away shortly before a collapse. Another notable visit was to the nuclear plant Chernobyl, when a creature haunted the facilities for a while before a famous nuclear meltdown. There were also two Mothman pictures taken in New York. 9-11 and multiple sightings before the Minnesota bridge collapse. 
Whoa. Um, some believe that the Mothman tries to warn people about disasters about to happen, such as the Fred Berg and Chernobyl sighting. The Chernobyl still, like, you still can't go there, right? I think. Uh, yeah, I think, I think some people have been allowed to, like, enter into the outskirts, but yeah, you have to wear it like a Geiger counter at all times. And if it starts going off, you got to, like, back away. <laughs> There's like the, that one poor reducer. You did it, people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's like a one town in like Japan or something. Or somewhere in South Asia, Southeast Asia. Like, whole town's like abandoned. So you could fall out. Ooh. That's weird. Yeah. Ooh. I can like see ghost that. town. Speaking of, uh, it was like the Robin Hood of American folklore. You think? Sorry, uh, what was that? Who do you think is like the Robin Hood of like American folklore? Oh, the Robin Hood of American folklore. Um, good question. I don't know a whole lot about American folklore. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't. If I want to think of a figure who like took from the rich and gave to the poor like i don't know fdr maybe, <laughs> maybe. yeah oh yeah maybe maybe like one of those kind of gangster figures um yeah maybe somebody like a bonnie and clyde there's got to be it's such a like recurring idea that there's got to mm -hmm. be somebody um now i gotta look this up <laughs> like me like I <laughs> right gotta know it Uh, yeah, there's, so now that I'm looking, now that I'm looking at what other people have researched, um, yeah. it looks like there is kind of an association between like Robin Hood and like the American outlaw. Yeah. Um, which is kind of cool. Like Billy the Kid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, are you big on westerns? Like westerns? Um, I'm I'm big on some westerns. I haven't seen like a lot of the classics, but um, I've definitely like I'm a fan of westerns every time I see one. Uh, but yeah, I haven't watched like the really, I don't know, like the the kind of classic John Wayne kind of ones. I haven't. I've seen any. <laughs> I think I've seen. I haven't seen one John Wayne movie. <laughs> What was one of your favorite westerns? Um, you know what? There's a it's a really funny one, but there's um. Well, I love the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, uh, I love the original and the remake. Like they're just really well done and an awesome story. And it's the Seven Samurai, so mm. can't go wrong with that. Um, but I there's a movie called Silverado that I really love. Uh, which has got like Kevin Klein's in it and Kevin Costner's in it. Uh, it's kind of a young actor, 
Um, and it's kind of a weird story, but I there are so many good actors in it, and they do really good performances. So I really dig that movie. Oh, uh, I think I had it. I think I watched it like ten times growing up. Yeah. Serato and um, Elder Wonka. Oh, dances, like, with, dances with wolves. Yeah, good yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I was just thinking. Oh, and of course, like Blazing Saddles. Yeah. <laughs> like if that counts as a western, I think it does. Oh yeah, who's that director? The director was like, uh, Blazing Saddles. It's uh, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, yeah. Mel Brooks, yeah. Is awesome. Of all his movies. Also, the dude who gave us Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> Him and, um, what's his face? From Willy Wonka. Oh, Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder. Him? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> Him, Gene Wilder, and, um, me. Oh. No, wait. I was gonna find his name. <laughs> Come on, me. <laughs> Richard Pryor. Oh yeah. Yeah, him Gene Wilder and Rich Pryor together are like really so funny. Good. So good. Yeah. <laughs> I think a movie that went to like prison together. And you're like I was laughing too. <laughs> so uh Mothman is uh described as a bipedal winged humanoid. Despite his name, which was given to him by newspapers, he is no way moth like. Has appearance more like that of a large humanoid owl. Its coloration varies from black, gray, to even brown. Although it's usually the darker shades, he's often reported to be about seven feet tall. Well, center. It's like an NBA center. Okay. Um, with a wingspan of about 10 to 15 feet or more, plus the ability to fly over 100 miles per hour. Pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, described as not having a head. Two huge eyes thick in his chest. These eyes are reported to be glowing or at least reflective. Details of his face and his feet have never been adequately described. One witness who saw his face clearly can only say that the details were horrible and monstrous. He had terrible nightmares and nearly suffered a nervous breakdown. Uh, anyone who gets close to the Mothman seems to suffer from extreme fear and psychological distress, sometimes lasting for months years afterwards. In particular, people say that a sense of pure evil or comes them from what they see oh, his eyes. Oh. He, can, he can fold his wings and walk the weird shuffle that minimizes his hair to a penguin. When he flies, he unfolds his wings and shoots straight up with a great speed then levels out to go wherever he wants to go. He is rarely observed flapping his wings except for on takeoff. This is how described his fly fighting as straight up like a helicopter. He can fly much faster than any bird should be able to fly, measured by those victims who suffer from what seems to be Mothman's favorite activity, chasing cars. He'll fly into front of them and even sometimes hit at the roof. That's not fun. Okay. Why would you do that, Mothman? <laughs> horrible. I seem very I seems like very like childlike in do. Some people. <laughs> I heard this idea that dragons 
legends come from like finding old bones from like dinosaurs yeah there's um there's a belief that yeah the belief in giants uh came from somebody finding like a dinosaur bone like and being like this person must have been huge yeah like they find like a mammoth mammoth skull yeah mammoth skull is the um the cyclops yeah because it it looks vaguely sort of like a human skull but it's got like a big area uh which I forget what that's for on mammoths, but it's got like a big sort of hollowed out area in the front of the skull that looks like it could be an orbital bone. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the Cyclops. What do you think about um, Queen Elizabeth? Or I you, love I, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she shows up in a couple of the episodes. Um, I did an episode on John Dee, who was her court astrologer and her court magician um and we talked a little bit of uh in the episode about um like elizabeth coming to her power and kind of inheriting from her sister mary and all of the different stuff she had to face and overcome at the beginning of her reign yeah she was like a badass yeah she was (laughs) like especially for that time yeah yeah i you know this is a world that that expected that she had to get married because of course, you know, she can't be expected to rule all by herself. Um, And in order to not upset Spain or France, she decided not to marry at all and just ruled on her own and was fine and ruled for about half a century. She no, she didn't. She was she's called the Virgin Queen, although oh, she yeah, probably right. wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, definitely didn't have any kids that we know of. Uh, yeah. So when she died, her nephew uh, James Stewart, or her, I guess, the son of her cousin is what that would be. Um, yeah, he takes the throne, so he becomes king of both Scotland and England. Oh boy, that's tough job. Right. <laughs> I wonder, like, I wonder what it was like being king or queen back then. So many maintenance. Not I, so I, many I, people. I imagine just a headache. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, your one job is to like keep your country from going to war, and you're surrounded by other countries that really want to go to war. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like this one. <laughs> like Matt. No, European map was like changing all the time. Right. Well, and and I'm sure like now, you know, you have critics in your court. So there are like your courtiers that like you and support you. And then there's like the Duke of Buckingham that you got to sit and wrestle with every day. There's been like, for the most part, it's been like relatively peaceful for like European goes. Relatively. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's like World War One and World War Two and stuff, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. But, but yeah, in the grand scheme, certainly in the the latter half of the 20th century and onward, most of Europe's been pretty peaceful. Um, certainly Western Europe. Yeah. yeah. I think Eastern Europe, there. I think Libya. Some countries had a rebellion right now, or had one past couple years. Great which one was. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, Ukraine's had some issues with Russia 
moving into Crimea. Uh, yeah, Belarus is having a moment right now um, where they're having lots of protests and unrest. So, yeah. There's just like that one guy from Ukraine is like, <laughs> going to work every day, taking my stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> Why? <laughs> uh, oh, oh, I guess we're doing this now. That's good. <laughs> Great. I mean, yeah, it does. It does have to be really rough to be the leaders of of some of those Eastern European powers, because you you may not be able to depend on like the U.S. or Western Europe mm-hmm. to come and defend you. And you know, Russia is sizable, so you don't want to like declare war on Russia. So yeah, they're kind of stuck. Russia's very, history of Russia is very strange. Like, <laughs> and then a bizarre, what was this guy from Russia who, not Rasputin's thing, terms like, I think it's a sorcerer. Oh, he's weird. Yeah, at some point I'm going to have to do an episode on Rasputin because there, yeah. there's just too much good stuff about him. <laughs> so, yeah. He had a lot of fun, I heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he had a good life. Uh, yeah, at some point, I think they tried to assassinate him with poison, and he survived. Uh, I think then they stabbed him, and he may have survived that. They shot him at some point. I think eventually they managed to kill him and, like, throw him in the river. <laughs> but, yeah. This depiction of Anastasia is pretty funny. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> That's like that's a deeply underrated movie, but yeah. I love Anastasia. <laughs> Remember the like the all the merch from like McDonald's and stuff. Oh like yeah, the, <laughs> a little back characters fun. <laughs> oh, Crowley, Crowley's fun too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. We did an, an episode on Alistair Crowley uh, called "The Wickedest Man in the World." It was one of his nicknames. Uh, yeah, he was a, like, I, I kind of knew his name and I knew a little bit about him, but the more I, I looked into it, that episode actually wasn't supposed to be about him. Um, the episode was supposed to be about the Order of the Golden Dawn and these like ritual magic societies in England. And he ended up kind of taking over the episode. There was so much stuff about him and he was so kind of uh, integral to how we think about magic in the modern era that he's super interesting. some technical difficulties. <laughs> hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast, and we are excited to officially be part of the Paranormality Radio Network. If you're looking for a show with variety and 
you're interested in taking deep rabbit hole dives into topics such as legend, lore, conspiracy, and creepypasta, all with a little bit of a storytelling, research, and personal experience twist, check out our show at paranormalityradio.com, fairylandparanormalpodcast.com, or through your favorite podcast player. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Cool. Oh, no, my other microphone's like being weird. I think I need to update my driver. Thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then we got, um, what are you about the Mothman story? I, that's so creepy and cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's, it's interesting that people say like they have this sense of evil about him but it seems like at least in the stories that you described it seems like he's trying to warn people so he seems maybe Uh not you know malicious (laughs) unless he's like causing it to happen he's like okay maybe there's that (laughs) it's like oh I mean, I'm looking at, so I I went looking for other possible theories about what people are seeing. Um, And one is that they might be seeing barn owls. Oh yeah. uh, Which we have here. And I can tell you, they they scare the crap out of me. (laughs) They're they're huge. Um, They have the scariest possible call. Like, cause they just like, like scream. so so yeah it's super creepy like in the summer here to have like the windows open and hear barn owls outside because it's just like but they're huge i can see like in low light seeing like a giant wingspan and their eyes do like reflect red back at in like at night so i could see maybe that happening uh but yeah those are like the description is super freaky Um, two legends from Shawnee lore, Mexican creatures closely resembling Mothman, deemed Miss Miskinjua and Wapi, respectively. In legends of Miskinjua, descriptions on Mothman is indeed similar to Bigfoot by ceremonial dress used during the bread dance. The Wapi legend is also similar as in part of a Shawnee lore a family of Native Americans chose young white hawks living in the forest near Pleasant. So believe that the Mothman be, may be an angel, demon, or a product of a blood curse placed upon the town by Chief Cornstalk, who was murdered along with his son in the area. 
Some of the curse theory is one very attached to the collapse of the Silver Bridge. The more, more likely assumptions, however, like a normal barn owl, and has been proposed, such as that the fact that the original signs, what the theme described as more in line with illusion during driving other signs, could be misidentifications and calls for attention. Uh, speculative, uh, I can't even own trap pronounce that. Pterosaurs um, also have been claimed made by certain people. However, it remains normal, fun, and speculative zoology. Think of uh, think about like Men in Black stuff. Oh, like the idea that there are aliens and the government definitely knows about them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I I go back and forth on this because it's not. It's definitely not like out of the realm of possibility that there's life on other planets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. And you know, it's. It's funny because, of course, like, there's an explanation for everything, right? Mm. Uh, like, you know, Area 51 is kept secret because it's this place where they're doing, like, experimental aircraft design and stuff like that. So, I don't know. I, like I said, I kind of go back and forth on it. I, I definitely think there is probably life on other planets. I don't know if they've actually come here yet. Um, I think if they have that kind of technology, we're screwed, <laughs> right? yeah. um, you know, cause we're essentially cavemen compared to like interstellar travel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, cause like, I mean, I, yeah. It was what like, what do you think about it? I'm with you. I think it's probably a very good chance for other other civilizations or at least other life in the universe. But whether they came here, whether they came here and the government knew about it and is hiding it is a different thing. Because mm -hmm. I like, a, the government's pretty stupid about doing stuff. I don't <laughs> think they're. Yeah, that's that's like often my response to conspiracy theories in general is like, it, you know, if you think an entire government can keep something a secret and like do that in a smooth, functional way, you yeah. have never been a project manager. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it requires a level of like cooperation and competence that I, I have rarely seen humans capable of. Like, oh, if, it's, <laughs> if, it, if you're doing it, it's like a lot of like non-disclosure agreements happening. Right. <laughs> Uh, there's a character called Andrew Cole. Uh, Andrew Cole, co-known as the Smiling Man, is an allegedly humanoid entity. His name comes from his tendency to smile at those who encounter him. Also said that he still visits West Virginia today. Green Man is it to be a human-like in appearance. Those only associated with UFO activity. And is sometimes believed to be an alien. It is also fully possibly connected with the Men in Black. In his first sighting, he was described as being over six feet tall wearing a reflective green suit with a black belt. He had dark complexion and small beady eyes set far apart. This could, that could fly with his wings. What? Where a sentence? Is it? You know, he was described as not having any nose, ears, or hair. In a second known encounter, his um, suit was said to be blue instead of green. 
but still retained its reflective property. Along with that, he was described as having looking perfectly natural with slick black hair, coat with the top two buttons unbuttoned, having pants flattered in the coat, but still the same material. It was also described as being quite tan, though not, not dark, and looking like any normal human being. According to reports made by Woodrow Derenberger, Andrew Cole came from a planet named Lionelos in the Gemini's galaxy. Okay, uh, that's a lot of big claims, Woodrow, you're making here. I understand. <laughs> and then there were two other grinning men by the name of Demo Hassan and Carl Ardo. Oh, that seems like a seems familiar. I think I heard about that in comic book. In the call was first seen October 1696. Two boys named Martin Mouse Monroe and James Jimmy Goddess in New York, Jersey were walking on 4th Street when they saw a surreal figure standing near a fence. As they walked closer, the figure was a tall, bald man wearing a metal screen suit who was wearing staring at right at them with a huge grin. Uh Oh, uh, interesting man chased him until they got away from him. UFO signs were also reported around the area. Uh, Jimmy nudged me and said, who's that guy standing behind you? I looked around and there he was, behind the fence, just standing there. He put it around and looked right at us. Then he grinned a big old grin. According to Night Mind, the boys only called most frightening details of the counter later on. They were called that the man in the green suit was unusually tall and had natural facial features. Lack of ears and the nose. That's crazy. <laughs> Almost worse that him having not nose or ears or him just like staring at them, smiling like a pedo, like a giant pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so creepy. Yeah, I don't know if you know. Um, do you know about Springhaled Jack? Oh yeah, Springhaled. Yeah, like it, it's fun. This sounds like that to me like descriptions of Springheel Jack where he's like, you know, kind of long and thin and always like a dark shape, maybe with wings, uh, with like glowing red eyes. Uh, it sounds really familiar. Is there a theory about Springheel Jack being um, Jack the Ripper? I have heard that, yeah. Um, and like, there are also, at the time there were some theories that Springheel Jack was Oh, some noble dude. Now I have to look it up. Um, but he was like an aristocrat. Oh, the Marquis of Waterford uh, was like the main suspect for being Springhale Jack. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's funny because uh, like there are people who just dismiss it entirely and say, well, this was just mass hysteria and a bunch of people like thinking they saw something because they heard a story. Um, but then there are also equally skeptical historians who think it in fact was a noble of some kind like out having fun and like menacing people um yeah Jack Ripper's crazy <laughs> I need to look into Jack River more but I, I, they still I don't think they just don't know for sure who it was yeah we still don't know there are there are guesses and theories and suppositions, but yeah, he he was never caught. Oh, so what? Um, what base? Like, what was it? 
idea of behind Spring Hill Jack being Jack the Ripper? I think just because he was, um, yes. so the, the stories are that he would like jump out at people or like appear behind people who are traveling alone. Um, and I think there were a couple of stories where he was supposed to have had like, like metallic claws on his hands and he was like clawing at people. Um, and so I think that that idea of just this kind of like fear of that figure, I think maybe also got associated with Jack the Ripper. It's kind of two equally dangerous and scary like bogeymen. And so I think they just got associated with each other in the popular imagination. I don't know. Those have been so scary, like living. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, Victorian London. It's it's funny because I love Victorian history, and yeah. I, I think if I didn't do medieval, that would be my specialty area. Is I would do Victorian England, but um, yeah, also such a scary place to live, especially yeah. if you weren't, you know, an aristocrat, if you weren't like super wealthy. Um, if you kind of were poor and lived in those neighborhoods, yeah, rough. <laughs> uh, it's like a lot of very depressing time. Like, was, especially like the clothes they wore, like very dark and very like uptight. For Rick. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, it's funny because the one of the things I like about the Victorian era is the Victorians gave us romanticism like that's where you get you know the poetry coming out of like Keats and Shelley and Coleridge these kind of grand romantic poems and you get paintings by the pre-Raphaelite painters of all these like colorful beautiful like medieval and renaissance scenes and it's all this kind of rejection of everything that is modern because the modern era is kind of what created this like gritty industrial London that they're all living in and they, you know, they kind of look around, they're like, well, the industrial era kind of sucks. Uh, how do we go back to something better? Uh, and so they kind of invent this romantic version of the Middle Ages. But yeah, so I, I think probably a pretty rough time, especially if you were a worker, you know, if you were yeah. like of a class where you had to like work in the factories. Yeah, not great. Yeah, it's, it's like the same thing happening in America. Like mm -hmm. industrial revolution is like really bad. Like, like for police. Um, yeah, so this was like child labor, like mm -hmm. really bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the labor movement and modern labor laws are, are good. I think we yeah. should embrace those. Yeah. Yeah. I know, like in America, we're like, like child like labor unions were pretty good thing to happen here in America because there were some shady practices happening. Oh yeah, yeah. The conditions were awful in some factories. Yeah. Are you a fan of Shelley? I have not been. Oh, oh Mary Shelley. Oh, Mary Shelley. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. Um, I so I um, do theater on the side oh, in yeah. addition to everything else. And I uh, a few years ago was in a production of Frankenstein. Oh, was it? It was really fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, I love Mary Shelley. I, I'll read Frankenstein all day, every day. Um, it's just, it's well-written, it's spooky, it's cool. 
Um, and that's another, I think, reaction to modernization, right? She's basically theorizing like, what if we took all this crazy new science and technology that we're developing and we, you know, put it to this weird supernatural use? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Calvinism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I read uh, Frankenstein in like, high school and like, like, oh, the creature is the hero in the book. The creature is actually the hero. Frankenstein is the yeah. villain. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a cool, I, I think that's one of the things I like most about the story is she could have just made it a kind of standard Victorian penny dreadful, yeah. you know, like there's a horrible monster that's supposed to scare us. But yeah, instead she, I think she did this really interesting thing where, yeah, the monster is actually more or less innocent, you know, yeah. and it's Frankenstein that is the problem. It, oh, I remember why you created the creature. I think it was like in trouble. I think it was just really egotistical about something. I forget exactly why he created the creature. I mean, Do you remember? I think because he could. Yeah. You know, like, I there. Yeah. I've seen versions of the story that kind of attempt to give him this sort of traumatic backstory. Um, but at least in the book, it's just that he has this idea that like a, he yeah, thinks like might God work. Com. Yeah. He has like a god comp to him. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. It's got to give you kind of an ego trip to be like, hey, I can create life. You know. So, yeah, I, so the book kind of just comes at it from, he has the capability to do this, he has the inspiration to do it, and so he just pushes until he does it. Um, but it's, it's interesting how many modern stories are based on that premise, right? Like, that's also the premise for Jurassic Park. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's... Right. Yeah. Is, you know, someone has an idea, he has the capability he decides to do it without really thinking about the potential risks or the ethical issues with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. And there's like him, like pretty much grave robbing bodies parts mm -hmm. for, for, for the book. And it goes into like how doctor used to like use cadavers. Yeah, the... grave robbing was real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there was a pair of guys, uh, Burke and Hare, uh, who were like cadaver men. Um, and the story, like they're, I think these were real guys. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure they were, but the story is, uh, they, they decide like they're having trouble finding enough bodies to satisfy like demand in the medical schools. And so they start killing people oh, yeah. to like create a supply. Um, yeah, there was a movie about them, uh, like I think a little while ago, probably about five years ago now. Um, I think they were like making a lot of money too from it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a it, like it was a really lucrative business. There was a lot of incentive to do that. Um, yeah. Cool. I think the doctor. I remember there were like doctors like, "Oh, what do you do, body? It's always fun." You're okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, you know, and the medical school, like, 
everything they were doing to acquire a cadaver was illegal. So they didn't yeah. ask questions of like, yeah. you know, where'd you get this one? Like they just didn't, you know, yeah. don't tell me, I don't want to know. <laughs> like, yeah. And there's a story of like Jack and Hyde. That's a very good old story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's another one about, you know, an ambitious scientist maybe getting ahead of himself before really thinking about the consequences. I mean, it's also kind of a fun metaphor for drug addiction. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> or, or like split personality. Yeah. Yeah, that there's like a substance that lets you, you know, do all the things that society won't. <laughs> yeah. What was that story about the guy, like his soul or his older in a mirror or picture? Oh, uh, Dorian Gray. Yeah. It's an Oscar Wilde story. Yeah, that's another story. good one. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much every story from like the League of Western Gentlemen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and have you seen Penny Dreadful? With, um, what's this? Yeah, with the Wolfman and like all the stories. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's all of those Victorian stories come together, like Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein and Dorian Gray. Um, yeah, they're all characters in the show. And it's it's actually pretty good. I like it. I was, I was, yeah, I like binge it over yeah. the song. <laughs> I forget who that lady was, who she was. Dorian Gray, Evergreen, Vanessa Lives. Yeah. Evergreen, Evergreen's awesome. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> how, how do you like? How do you like her? Um, well, she's like the queen or, or author's sister in the one HBO. Or oh yeah, she played uh, Morgan Le Fay. Yeah. In Camelot. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was awesome in that. Uh, I also loved her. She was Artemisia in um, uh, the 300 sequel, yeah. Rise of an Empire. Uh, yeah, she played Artemisia. She was awesome in that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's very cool. What do you think about Morgan Le Fay? I, so it's, the Arthurian legends are super interesting because they're this kind of hodgepodge of medieval literary genres. So there are parts of the Arthurian legends that are actual medieval, like chivalric romance, like Lancelot, for yeah. example, and Galahad and the search for the Holy Grail. Um, those are very kind of 12th century things to write about. Um, but there are also parts of the Arthurian legends that are clearly part of a much older tradition, probably, you know, either early medieval or maybe ancient Celtic stories. And that's where you get the figures like Merlin and Morgan Le Fay. Um, you know, you get Uther and the dragons. Uh, you know, I think, so it's kind of interesting because you get this Celtic tradition that has been there for centuries and centuries and it gets <clears throat> uh, mishmashed together with the romantic tradition. So suddenly you've got a world in which you've got Lancelot and Galahad running around looking for the Holy Grail, but you've also got Merlin and Morgan Le Fay using magic. So I, I think Morgan Le Fay is probably like Merlin, a representation of a much older Celtic deity. Um, there's a Celtic goddess called the Morrigan, who uh, she's kind of a, a, I don't know, like a dark goddess. She's the goddess of like battlefields. 
uh, and like taking care of the dead uh, who've been killed in battle. Um, but she's also kind of like this, this queenly figure. Um, she's sometimes called like the great queen, um, but she's definitely associated with like war and destiny and like death and the battlefield. Um, so I think Morgan Le Fay kind of comes out of that older goddess figure. It sounds like the goddess from that Thor movie, Thor Ragnarok. This is like this sister. Oh, yeah, yeah, Hela. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, I I think it's a it's those are kind of closely associated ideas. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the Morgan is kind of the the Celtic version of the Norse Hela, who's you know yeah kind of the the goddess. Same thing of like war and death and destiny and victory in the battlefield. Yeah. yeah. There's there's a theme it's like women in battlefield goddesses like um Valkyries and Hela and Morgana. What do you think yeah. about the theory of like uh, Morgan Le Fay being author's sister and them having a kid together who's Oh name? yeah. Uh Mordred. <laughs> Mordred, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, Mordred who ends up killing Arthur and like yeah. destroying England. Um Yeah, I mean I I like, here's my guess. Here's my take on <laughs> my hot take on Morgan Le Fay. <laughs> uh, is I think it represents these like older stories and rituals. So um, there's a theory that in uh, older Celtic ritual, the king would like marry the land yeah. by like having sex with a priestess of some kind who's supposed to represent the goddess. Um, so if Morgan Le Fay kind of represents the goddess figure in the Arthurian legends, then the idea of like the king having a child with her is sort of recalling, I think, this older tradition um, where the king sort of marries the land through the goddess. Um, the fact that Mordred comes out to be super evil, uh, I think is interesting that, you know, Mordred comes out as this, like, destructive force. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but, yeah. And it could be, maybe that's the the kind of medieval Christian final take on this, is, like, if you do this, if you do these, like, old kind of pagan ritual traditions, this is what happens. Like, the whole country gets destroyed. Um, so it's possible that that's supposed to be the message of the story. But, yeah, I, like, that's kind of my my take on why that scene exists. Yeah, it seems like it's like saying like, if, like yeah, like pagans, like don't do this pagans, they're like, they're bad. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, because Mordred's kind of the anti-Arthur. Yeah. Right, and so, yeah, I think, I think if Arthur is supposed to represent this transition toward Christianity in England, I think maybe Mordred represents that older pre-Christian tradition um, and therefore kind of a threat to Arthur and his kingdom. And Mer Merlin's pretty much like the old wise man, Odin like, type. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely like the, the kind of old guide 
uh, archetype, right? The seer. Um, yeah, and and Merlin is definitely also an ancient kind of pre-Christian Celtic character. Um, so yeah, I think you know, and of course, you always have that that kind of mentor figure in all these start rights, like the yeah. hero's journey. Uh, where like Obi-Wan, you know, kind of serves that purpose in Star yeah. Wars, for example. Um, but yeah, it makes sense then that if the story of King Arthur is this sort of hero's journey, that he's got to have this mentor who's kind of the old wise dude. I always think of the old man in the cave in Zelda. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. Uh, November 2nd, 1966, uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia, the same area and time as the Mothman came about. Gerald Derenberg was driving his way home on Interstate 77 until he heard a crash. Then an unifiable vehicle appeared to land in front of his truck. Described it as an old fashioned kerosene lamp chimney, flaring at both sides, narrowing down to a small neck and enlarging the great bulge in the center. Grinning man came out of the vehicle with a dark tan and walked up to Derenberger and telepathically said his name was Andrew Cole. He meant no harm. Cole said he just wanted to know more about the human race. He would visit Derenberger again. After the encounter, Derenberger said that Cole revealed he was from planet Galanlos in the galaxy of um, the Mades. Uh, during the same period in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the Lily family had been reporting the poltergeist's activity in her home with his diamond-shaped lights. The Lily's daughter, Linda, was sleeping one night and woke to see a man standing over her. It was a man, a big man, very broad. I can't see his face very well, but I could see that he was grinning at me. He walked around the bed and stood right over me. I screamed again and hid under the covers. When I looked up again, he was gone. Sure. Is there like a story, like an archetype of like some smiling figure stories, like a jester? Yeah, um, the trickster yeah. is usually what that's called. Yeah, um, yeah, and the trickster's super fun because you're you're not quite sure if they're good or bad, or if they'll help you or not. <laughs> you know, they seem to kind of have their own moral code. Uh, so yeah, I think Han Solo is the trickster yeah. uh, in Star Wars. Um, Joker's oh, very evil and pretty. Yeah, Loki. Loki's definitely a trickster yeah. character. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, where he might help you, but probably not. <laughs> you yeah. Know? But yeah, there are a lot of those. Um, I mean, in a way, Robin Hood is kind of a trickster character, yeah. right? He sort of exists outside of the laws of normal society and kind of does the reverse of what most people do. Um, so yeah. And there's like the coyotes, like the coyote figure in North America. Yeah. Like, I wonder if like people like heard like they write similar stories. I wonder if they've heard it before, or it's like this idea in people's heads of like how writing goes. That's, I mean, that's a really good question. It, we have so many of these 
similar stories from so many different times and places that I, I think it's just how, how humans like think about the world and yeah. their own development, you know, like I think, I think there's something in human psychology that, that like understands all of these different kinds of characters, like understands what a mentor figure is and understands what a trickster is. And, um, you know, I think the pattern, if there's like a pattern to these myths and these hero journeys, I think it's, it's a pattern that all humans kind of inherently recognize. Yeah. 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 It's like, like think about the hero's journey and like, oh, this is, yeah, this is pretty much every story you ever <laughs> had. We wonder why, how come we do this? I can't think of a story. I can't think of a story that like doesn't follow that hero's journey. I guess Jurassic Park. Yeah, Jurassic Park is a kind of a weird. Like, it doesn't really follow the hero, like adventure. Yeah, I think. I mean, certainly, I think the hero's journey is is kind of specific to. Like to like a single genre, kind of the yeah. the myth, legend, lore kind of genre. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, certainly like every epic you've ever read, at least in the West, um, you yeah. know, like the, the Iliad, like those are all kind of hero's journeys. Um, but yeah, I, you know, there are other narrative structures, I think. And I think it's really interesting that nowadays, um, I think novelists and filmmakers are starting to try to play with other kinds of ways of storytelling, other different kinds of story structure. Um, but it's kind of interesting that we always kind of come back to that hero's journey. Well, what's some other um, plot like story structures? Oh, um, I mean, there's stuff like... Um, like the parallel story. So there's, yeah. if you think of something like Rashomon, um, I don't know if you know that movie, but it's, its structure is pretty, um, I think pretty well studied at this point. Like, so the, the idea behind Rashomon is there's like this crime that gets committed and the rest of the story tells the same story, the, same, the story of the same crime from four different people and from four different perspectives. And so you get, like, each account disagrees with the others on what actually happened. Um, and so sometimes you get those, where you get kind of non-linear or, like, multi-perspective storytelling, which is fun. That's fun. What's been the pain to write, though? Oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah, like, how do I make this one a little bit different from this one? <laughs> Not too similar. Like the same but different. It's hard. <laughs> also, I was like, I, I have like look at, I have no idea what a producer does. Like, what does a producer do? Uh, in and, what? It depends on what you're talking about. <laughs> in like a, a movie. Oh, um. I wasn't sure. I think I was like like 10, 20 different credits for like executive producer. Like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, 
It's a really good question and something that I don't have enough experience to talk about, but mm -hmm. my impression um, is that often the producers are in charge of, this is gonna sound silly, but they're in charge of production. So they're, they're in charge of like the logistics of actually getting the film done. Um, you know, and kind of, yeah, overseeing production, overseeing like teams of people who are supposed to be making or doing various things for the sake of the film. And I think some of them are responsible for handling the money, but I don't know <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, I was wondering, like, how come there's like 12 freaking credits for executive producer? That even yeah. Mean? My my co-producer Tom uh, yeah. like has some experience in television and film and would absolutely be able to answer that question. But yeah, I know very little outside of like theater. <laughs> so also, also took theater. Also, I had like a theater class here. Like I didn't have a. We had like a theater class, I think, but um, no one told me about it in high school. Like there's no. I think signed up on the bulletin board about like, oh no. <laughs> I guess it was because of my classes or something. Theater yeah. sounds like fun. I, I do like, I always do like a stage props or something. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, there's huge demand for really good prop masters because props are hard to make. <laughs> also, your pants on. What's your favorite um, play? Ooh. I, so, man, that's a really tough question. I, I think my favorite play is Richard III. Um, I did it many, many, many years ago, but I really dig it and I kind of want to either do it again, either be in it or direct it, um, but I would love to do it again. Uh, but I also really, it's bad luck to say it outside the theater, so I'll knock on wood, but I really like Macbeth. Um, oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, you know, there are lots of people who are like, oh, I don't like it, it's violent, it's weird, it has no point, but I absolutely love it. I think in terms of exciting storytelling, it's one of the best things Shakespeare's done. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a cool play, and you can do lots of different things with it. Um, I was actually, I was, in a production, we'd been rehearsing all through the spring. We were two weeks away from opening when in March we had to shut everything down. Um, so ultimately we don't get to do it, which is a bummer. Um, and I think that's why, so the very first episode of Enchanted is on um, the witch hunts in Scotland. Oh, but oh. yeah, and but like the reason the witches appear in Macbeth is kind of a hat tip to King James uh, and his hatred of witches and his like kind of obsession with witchcraft. Um, and so I ended up kind of using snippets from Macbeth to kind of bookend the episode, uh, which was super fun. And I think, I think Macbeth was just really on my mind when I did that first episode and it kind of felt like, okay, now I've talked about the play. I've, I've kind of, in, you know, analyzed it a little bit. I can be done thinking about it now. I love it, Miss. I'm so. That's awesome. I think, I think it's one of the best. <laughs> it's a really like it's a cool story. Um, there's lots, like I said, there are lots of really cool approaches to it that you can take. Um, yeah, 
it's fun to do. <laughs> sure. I think it was, a, it was our modern take on the best. There have been a few. Um, there's a really fun film. I think it's called Scotland, PA. Uh, like with, <laughs> yeah, with Christopher Walken in it. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of a modern-ish like take on Macbeth. Um, he's like, was it other medieval Henry the Fifth? I think or eight Henry the Fifth? I think it was. Oh yeah, Henry the Fifth's the one with the awesome Band of Brothers speech. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is this is it is it awesome? Like when you first like go start rehearsing at first, like everyone like. Not so, not, no, suck. There's like, like, <laughs> <laughs> like kind of off. Like, you know, and yeah. eventually, after like a few weeks or a week or so, like everyone's like awesome. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's part of the fun of doing theater is exactly that. Yeah. That, that at first, you know, at first it's a bad play because, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I think everyone's still at the beginning of their process and, and process looks messy it looks like bad acting um until yeah you you all kind of finally drop into gear together and it starts to feel smooth and fun and um and that's always a really good moment because that's when you get to start playing um you know you sort of see someone trying something new and you're like oh yeah yeah we can totally do that you start to kind of play off of them um yeah that's the fun part I also know how to act. Uh, it'd be fun to be like, get a point like, do acting and like, get a point like where does it feel like acting? Yeah, yeah, after a certain, it's, there's a certain point, if you're lucky, there's a yeah. certain point, like the week before opening usually, where you've gotten comfortable with everything, with like the lights and the sets and the costumes and your props and all the stuff you have to do. Um, and you reach a point kind of during the run of the show where, you can kind of like you don't have to think about what you're supposed to be doing and because of that you can start to like kind of play and relax and um you know have some fun and get creative with it uh so yeah there's a there's a certain point where it doesn't feel like you're acting anymore it just feels like you're Pretend you're like you're having fun mm-hmm. yeah you're in the moment with your friends um, and sometimes you're having a better time than the audience. <laughs> I still haven't seen um, one play that's real popular. Hamlet. Um, what was it? Hamlet? Oh, Hamlet. oh, Hamilton? Hamilton, thank you. I yeah. Still I, I still, still haven't seen it. <laughs> like, And I have Disney+. Plus. It, mm-hmm. Like, I could see it. I just haven't had, like, two and a half hours to sit down and watch yeah. it. Um, but yeah, I really want to see it. Uh, like, I love the music. Um, well, but yeah, haven't seen it yet. I love musicals. <laughs> What's your favorite musical? Um, we did a few years ago. We did Spam a lot, which was really really fun. Yeah. Um, so I like Spam a lot. It's a musical based on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it was. It's a good time. Um, so that was fun to do. Uh, I don't know favorite musical. Like the one I can listen to always is probably Hamilton. Um, I still kind of dig the music from that. Like, like, 
I haven't seen Cats. I'll, I'll say Cats, is, but I haven't, I've never watched it. Cats ever. It's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's horrible. I, yeah, I saw Cats on stage once. I saw a tour of Cats and yeah, it's, it's, it's singing Cats. It's what you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I like, uh, oh, The Christmas Carol's good and Let's yeah. Meditate for All is good. What do you think of the movie? How was the movie Curtis get to play? Uh, of which one? Lesmith uh can't like Lesmith Burrell. Lesmith Burrell, I can't pronounce it right. I don't know. Oh, oh, oh. Uh uh Les Miserables? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh so that was probably the first like professional musical that I saw. Um I saw it in San Francisco when it was on tour. And I loved it. That was like one of the things that got me to want to do theater. Um, yeah. Was seeing that, yeah. I just like cried through the entire second half. Um, but it was really good. And so, yeah. So I don't know if seeing the movie, I don't know if it like didn't quite have the same like effect for me because it was so many years later and I kind of yeah. already knew the story and the music and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, there are like things about the movie I didn't love, um, like Russell Crowe, <laughs> like I, I love Russell Crowe in a certain kind of role, but that was not it. Um, yeah. yeah and they kind of, they did some things where they like switched around a couple of numbers where it kind of changed the meaning of the song a little bit. I was like, uh, I don't know. Um, so yeah, the movie was, was okay. Um, but the stage musical is so cool. It, yeah, I love, I love plays more in movies. I don't know, like mm -hmm. it feels way better. Was yeah, doing, live theater's know. cool. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't really blame Russell Crowe. He just it's more like a casting director's fault, really. Yeah, I mean, I think they were they were looking for like giant names who can sing. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, surely Russell Crowe. Um, but yeah, that's, but it's also, that's a really difficult part, like vocally and in terms of acting. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, here. What's happening over here? Oh, what's happening? <laughs> This is, it was like the really good, like, who's in Broadway right now, like, acting on it? Ooh, um, I mean, right now, nothing's on Broadway. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, so there's that. Uh, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't heard of anything, like, really earth-shattering on Broadway lately. Um, there was some big actor, like, doing some Broadway. I think the last thing I heard about that that people were kind of talking about being worth seeing was um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the oh, yeah. like Aaron Sorkin adaptation, uh, which I imagine would be really good. I love that book. They're like, I guess they're doing like Doom Call. You know, also, you got the uh, Wicked. It's on 
Oh yeah. Flanking for the bomber. Harry Potter. Why is that so down apart? No. That makes me higher. Lion <laughs> King's still like killing it. The play. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's fun. One rogue. One rogue is awesome. Speaking of, uh, back on West Virginia, uh, the Flatwoods Monster, also known as the Braxton County Monster or Frametown Monster, is a cryptid sighted in the forests of Flatwoods, West Virginia, and Frametown, West Virginia, respectively. It is believed to be an extraterrestrial in nature. The entity was initially reported as being about 10 feet tall and 4 feet wide. It appeared to be some sort of robotic suit or spacecraft rather than an organic being. It had a cowl in the shape of an ace of spades and a red round head and set in the head were two eyes described as portholes glowing green orange in the size of half dollars. The body was a metallic armor structure hung with thick vertical pipes. Discrepancies exist in the actual color of the armor, some claiming it to be black while others saying green. The existence of arms is a similar matter. Most say that monsters monster was armless while others claim it possessed small toy-like arms. Springtown monster, believed to be the same creature from Flatwoods, bore similar pipeline metallical armor from the waist down, from the waist up, however, the other being a reptilian humanoid. Uh, at 7.15 p.m. on September 12, 1952, three little boys witnessed a bright object across the sky. This object came to rest on land blind to a local farmer. Once they saw the land, land, the boys went to one of the mom's houses, where they reported seeing a UFO crash land in the hills. From there, the boys and a group of local, locals went to the farm and tried to find whatever it was the boys had, the boys had seen. One of the locals' dogs ran ahead of the site and started barking, and moments later, ran back to the group with his tail between its legs. After traveling about a quarter of a mile, the group reached the top of a hill, where they probably saw a large pulsating ball of fire about 50 feet away. Also, so smelled a mist that made their eyes and noses burn. A farmer then noticed two small lights over to the left of the object and directed this flashlight towards them, revealing the creature. To support, they made it a shrill hissing noises for gliding towards them, changing directions, and then hunting off towards the red light. At this point, the group fled in panic. Upon returning home, the mother contacted the local sheriff and the news reporter. Reporter conducted a number of interviews and, reported and returned to the site with the farmer later that night when he reported that there was a sickening burnt metallic ore still prevailing. Sheriff and his deputy searched the air separately and found no trace of the counter. Early the next morning, the reporter visited the site of the counter for a second time and discovered two tracks in the mud, as well as traces of a thick black liquid. He mentally reported them as being possible signs of a saucer landing based on the premise that the air had not been subjected to traffic for at least a year. This really revealed that tractors were likely to have been those of a Chevrolet pickup truck driven by a local who had gone to the site to look for the creature some hours prior to Stewart's discovery. 
After the event, investigators associated with civilian saucer investigations obtained a number of accounts from witnesses who claimed to have experienced a similar or related phenomenon. These accounts include the story of a mother and her 21-year-old daughter who claimed to have encountered a creature with the same appearance and odor a week prior to the September 12th incident. The, the encounter reportedly affected the daughter so badly that she was confined to the hospital for three weeks. They also gathered a statement from the mother of the local farmer in which she said that the approximate time of the crash, her house had been violently shaken and her radio had cut out for 45 minutes. A report from the director of the local board of education in which he claimed to have seen a flying saucer taking off at 6.30 morning of September 13th morning after the picture was sighted. A day after the flight was incident, a couple taking a leisurely drive through the mountains of Frametown, West Virginia at dusk were met with a similarly horrific experience. Their car came to a sudden stop and refused to start again. Shortly thereafter, a crucial suffered order filled the air. Couple circling the vehicle and also spotted culprit spotted something far worse than they could have imagined. On the waist down, it was similar to the flat with monster, but from the waist up was a reptilian humanoid. This creature, thought to be the same creature sighted in the flat, was, was known as the Frangtown Monster. What's going on here? What's going on here? <laughs> Oh, this is that isn't like a thing in literature about like some kind of like creature like invoking fear and like madness and people will see it oh yeah that's um that sounds like hp lovecraft yeah and his stuff uh yeah cthulhu and the elder gods are supposed to like for people who see them it's supposed to like drive them to madness you heard that theory? What was that movie with Sandra Bullock that came out? The can't like either can't see, can't or look at stuff. Oh, was that Bird Box? Bird Box, yeah. The, yeah, the Netflix one. Yeah, I like. I actually really liked that movie. I thought it was a cool yeah. premise. Yeah. There's you hear the theory that's like based off like it's Cthulhu they're seeing. No, but I I can totally see that. Um, I like the idea. Yeah, because Lovecraft, in his stories, there's always like this creature that you're not supposed to look at. And sure enough, there's always somebody who wants to look at it. <laughs> uh, it's almost like, I mean, it's a little like Pandora's box and yeah. like all this, you know, I don't know, Sleeping Beauty and the Spindle, right? It's all this like, you know, you're not supposed to do this thing. And so that person's definitely going to do the thing. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, because I think based off the uh, one guy, what the guy was drawing, it's like very like HP Lovecraftian mm-hmm. imagery. The guy was drawing, seeing mm-hmm. everyone goes like, did he kill themselves or just like oh. In the in the story, they like kind of go nuts and they like yeah. make other people look at the creatures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty, him like. And on the forest, down the river, and they start walking in the forest and start hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His voice. Oh. So creepy. So creepy. <laughs> oh. What do you think of the plot with Monster? 
What what do I think about? Sorry, um, I missed the. What do you think about the Flatwoods monster? Oh, the Flatwoods monster. Um, I don't know. Like, again, like because of all the stuff we've talked about, yeah. I like monsters in the woods. I'm like, is it a monster or is it just the woods? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. Anytime I hear of a monster that's like in a swamp, in a bog, in the woods, in like some area that is not at all part of civilization, I'm like, is it a monster or is it just like the really scary, you know, parts of nature? Yeah. Seems to be like the description of it seems to be like a very cheesy, like a very cheesy idea of aliens, like, <laughs> like a trash can body and it sounds like a 50s B movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind, of, I, kind of, I kind of love about it, but <laughs> it's like very early Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's not far in Japanese. Very artwork. Very cool artwork from it. <laughs> Uh, do you ever watch Doctor Who? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I haven't watched like the classic ones, but I've watched all of the, the like new ones. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, who's been your favorite Doctor? Um, uh, I, I... I know it's hard because uh, they're, so, they're so different and so great for like, different reasons. Yeah. I mean, I, I really loved David Tennant's Doctor. Yeah. Um, just, yeah, he like, he was so lovable and special and awesome. And I, I loved him so much that when they brought Matt Smith on, I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to like him, you know, because like, yeah. how do you beat David Tennant? And then I watched Matt Smith and he was so good. So I am kind of torn because I loved Matt Smith's doctor. I love David Tennant's doctor. I think it's interesting because David Tennant's doctor was like really kind of sensitive and caring and naive. And I liked that about yeah. him. Matt Smith's doctor, like, was sort of that but then had these moments where you're like oh that guy definitely destroyed planets yeah <laughs> you know which is cool i like i liked that version too where it was this doctor who really likes having fun but he really likes having fun because he's done some terrible things yeah tenant and his um he seems like very curious about things and yeah yeah, there was a kind of like childlike quality to David Tennant's doctor. And Peter Capaldi came in. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Peter Capaldi's awesome. Um, yeah, the latest doctor, she's great. I need to, I need to catch up on Doctor Who. I haven't seen it in forever, like work and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think I'm binge it this one day. Yeah. <laughs> Because like the, this, every episode is like really good at. It's very philosophical, in a way. Um, what was your favorite episode? Oh, I mean, I, I love the two Weeping Angels episodes. Oh, those were cool. I mean, honestly, anything written by Stephen Moffat. Yeah. Um, those are always the best episodes, I think. Um, but the Weeping Angels is so, it's so cool so as a premise. Yeah, yeah and then they so they did a really good job with both of them. 
because I that could be a really cheesy way to introduce, you know, a monster, but yeah. they really but they job. did it so well. Yeah, yeah. Was it, on the first one, it was like they were trying mm-hmm. to introduce them. Was the second one when they were in space, you know, on that ship? I think. I think yeah. that the second one, they're in like a city. It looks like New York. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think the first one, they're on a ship. Yeah. And one of the angels is on the ship. Um, yeah, and then the second one, the second one I just remember because they're in like a New Yorkish type setting and one of the angels is the size of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> oh yeah. Which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, what's that one? That one episode, it's like it's a superior quality. He's like in that place, like thousands of years after that one character dies. Oh yeah. Is this, is this him grieving? Is this him the process of him grieving? Mm-hmm. I love that episode. It's so good. Yeah. The last one. and there's a river. Then it's like river song. That thing with Matt Smith and River Song. Oh yeah, that was cool. Alex Kingston did an awesome job with River Song. Yeah. Was he? Oh, then they changed the character for uh, his like arch rival. What's his name? Uh, the master. Oh yeah, I think it was the master. The other, the other like doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Is, like they made the other him, time lord i should say yeah 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 and they made him like female characters is like pretty much oh no we can't do that right <laughs> and then the same then the same with the doctor <laughs> like oh what was the three who was the the durians it was like the doctor's like our like, enemies i forget oh the daleks daleks thank you yeah um, yeah, which again could have been really cheesy, um, but they did kind of a great job yeah. in giving the Daleks a whole story and universe. I think they're like, I like when they come in, they're fun. How's the new doctor? How's the new doctor? How is she? She's great. Um, yeah, definitely. If you haven't seen her, give her a try because she's really cool. She um, she does a good job of kind of combining the, the like curiosity and fun of the doctor with some of the badassness. Oh god, there's that one episode about that monster. Is like, oh, you can't really look at it. It's like always. Like behind the corner of your oh, eye. Yeah. Uh, they, they, oh yeah. They never showed it. Throughout the whole, I think they showed it. For the like silence is that what they're called? The silence. Where like they yeah they occasionally show up on like film, and things like that. And there's like a whole I think the whole silence. Yeah, you can't see them, but they sort of run the course of like the universe. 
have to look it up because I think that's what they're called. <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's them. That's another Stephen Moffat creation. Hey everyone, you're invited to Harpy Hour! I'm Tracy. I'm Liz. I'm Steph. We are the Harpies. And Harpy Hour is our new podcast featuring ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Were you ever suspicious that pigeons were secretly spying on you? How do you know who to eat first if you survive a shipwreck? Do problematic musicals send you into an uncontrollable rage? If so, then Harpy Hour might be your new favorite podcast. That's H-A-R-P-Y for Harpy, and new episodes air every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on all social media at Harpy Hour Pod. And check us out on harpyhourpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Hello, everyone. This is Brandon, the host of the Unity Podcast, wanting to take a second to tell you about our show. The Parunity Podcast is your top choice for closing the distance between the paranormal groups. From ghosts to cryptids to ufology, we will discuss it all. The Parunity Podcast is aimed at promoting positivity and collaboration between investigators and is geared specifically for those in the field. But if you're not, you'll still get a kick out of the show as well, because you'll be able to think of it like ghost hunters talking shop. Tune in and join myself and all of our amazing guests as we entertain you with sensational stories of fantastic places, events, tips for your investigations, and so much more. And remember, you can find the Parunity Podcast on your favorite podcast directory and part of the Paranormality Radio Network. Saying how it all been. Zygon. Where is Zygon again? I do not remember. Oh, was it knock knock?
don't know this. How do you think? Hmm? Oh, what was the scariest um, monster for you in Doctor Who? Um, it's a toss-up between the Weeping Angels and the Silence. Those are like the two that I think of immediately. I mean, the Cybermen are kind of scary too. Yeah, since they're dead yeah. people. Yeah, and they're yeah that they they're humans who've had like all their humanity stripped away from them, and they're they're kind of inexorable. Like, like you can't reason with them. You know, it's really hard to stop them. So yeah, they're kind of scary. Yeah, but maybe like real creepy about I maybe like really paranoid about statues now after <laughs> this show Wait, is it listen? Again. Look, I'll probably Oh, okay, listen. That's episode. Um, in this episode, alien time traveler Doctor Who, very well, they attempt to track down a creature, the perfect ability to hide. It was training and clear. There was a date. Farmers. Listen was actually. Uh, okay. Oh yeah. That's it. Listen. Was that part of the... Was that the silence? Oh. unlikable person in medieval times. <laughs> um I don't think it's pretty bad. I'm like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I think King John. King John. I think Richard the Lionhearted's Weasley little brother. Yeah. Um yeah, terrible king. <laughs> like like probably not that bad of a human being, but terrible, terrible king. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's so bad for I think. This wasn't his thing, I guess. I, yeah, I think he was just never... I mean, I think some people just aren't good leaders, but he was also never really trained to be the next king. Like, yeah, Richard was supposed to be the king, and Richard's supposed to have a son who will be the next king. Um, and Richard just died before he had a son who could be king. And so... John, by default, kind of ended up accidentally being king. Uh, and okay. yeah, was just really bad at it. Supposed <laughs> <laughs> to this be awesome. The other God. Okay, that must been really hard, okay, because his brother died. And I'm sure he's grieving. I'm sure he cared about his brother. 
he must or he's like fully like surpassed and didn't care or I guess he did care. Right. <laughs> he's like he's, I mean, grieving, yeah. he's grieving over his brother his brother just died and he's expected to run this like I guess it's a project empire for England. Yeah. Yeah, because it was England and a big chunk of France that yeah. belonged to, you know, his kingdom. Um, yeah, and by that point, like, Richard had been gone for so long. Like, yeah. I think in, yeah, in like, a 10-year reign, Richard was in England for less than a year. Yeah. Um, so the nobles had gotten used to running England without a king. Yeah. And suddenly John's, like, trying to be super authoritative king in a kingdom that is like, well, our king's been gone. We didn't notice. Like, you sit down. Um, so, yeah. So what? Oh, was... <laughs> I can see how aggravating, how, like, aggravating I could be for John. <laughs> I'm trying to do my job here. <laughs> what do you think of the crusade? Like, then, during time, there's, like, crusades happening, too. That's interesting. I don't think I think they wasn't very successful with the Crusades. I don't think were No, I mean, if the goal of the Crusades was to get control of Jerusalem, no, no. the first Crusade is the only one that managed to do that. Yeah, <laughs> like, um, yeah. I the Crusades are kind of interesting because so many were so unsuccessful. Yeah, and yet, like, it continued. So, yeah. Right. That is, weird. that is very weird for like logistically reasons. Yeah, and and some of them were downright disastrous. Like the Fourth Crusade results in the sack of Constantinople, which is like another Christian city. Yeah. So, yeah, not again, not a good look. Um, yeah, it, and yet there was this like constant impulse to like go and reclaim Jerusalem. Yeah, wasn't there like a bunch of like backlash for like all the crusades eventually like building up from the lower classes because they kept getting sent out to... Yeah. Um, yeah, they kept getting taxed to help pay for them and kept getting like recruited and sent out. So, yeah. Okay. Was it like, I forget why, like, was that? Jerusalem's like a... Pretty far from Europe. Like, I think of the ways like they could. Let's just let's, let's go in there and mm-hmm. all equipment and stuff. And can, like really pain the ass. Yeah, at some point the king of Germany, the Holy Roman Emperor, drowns on his way to crusade. Uh, yeah, so some of them don't make it, <laughs> and some of them don't make it back. Historian, very. I always wonder about like historians, like what, like, I wonder if they like were edited a lot. <laughs> I don't, like, we write this down or leave that out. Yeah, yeah, like chroniclers writing at the time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, most of the time chroniclers are hired by, you know, the king they're supposed to be chronicling. Yeah, uh, they're pretty much their publicists at the time. Yeah, so so sometimes you get what are sometimes called secret histories, which is like what the historian actually thought that he writes in a different volume. Oh. Um, 
but yeah, and sometimes like historians, chroniclers and stuff will like throw a little bit of shade in a really subtle way. Like um, Einhard, who was the chronicler for King Charlemagne. Uh, so Charlemagne could read, but wasn't great at writing. And Einhard in his chronicle is like, well, the king's large hands were not formed to make letters. <laughs> so it's kind of his excuse for like Charlemagne not, you know, not being that well educated in writing. Um, as like, well, the king has these like mighty paws that don't let him write. <laughs> you know, what can you expect? Um, so yeah, chroniclers sometimes can like kind of give a hat tip to us and let us know what's going on. But yeah, our, like by and large, probably couldn't say anything blatantly negative. Yeah, or just or well, execution was very interesting here in the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, like the French Revolution, and it's were like popping off with the Revolution of the Guillotine. Yeah, I mean that's that's all like modern um which i guess is kind of part of the the modern narrative is as technology improves you know modern people found more efficient ways of killing each other um yeah there it's funny because I, I mean definitely there were executions in the middle ages but i think they were far more rare than we tend to think about or like we tend to show in movies and tv yeah yeah Who was a sister? Who was the sister of Mary? Not Mary. Was Mary? Like, uh, Bloody Mary? Who was she? Oh, yeah. That was probably Mary the First, yeah. um, which is Henry the Eighth's daughter yeah. with Catherine of Aragon. Um, yeah, she was super Catholic in a super Protestant England. Um, and so was having Protestants like arrested and burned as heretics. Uh, so yeah, that got her that nickname. Yep. <laughs> Weird. When did uh, when did England start like colonizing? Like was it early like like sixteen hundred? I don't when start. England... When did when did England start like colonizing like everywhere? Oh. Um. I mean, arguably, England colonized France and Ireland in the yeah. Middle Ages. Um, but yeah, they, they end up in the Americas in the 14, 14, uh, late 16th, early 17th century. So yeah. like during Elizabeth's time, yeah. um, I think were the first expeditions to the Americas. Um, and then I think my i i get kind of fuzzy on like modern timelines but um i know that like the bulk of english imperialism was in like the 19th century yeah, um china and japan yeah and india and places like that yeah and the they had a great army they had a great navy i remember like the british navy was pretty much unstoppable during that time yeah yeah the british navy has like always been super uh advanced and pretty unbeatable at sea and something happened 
like World One or World Two, like the malls, like get very big hit to their economy. I think happened. Yeah, I certainly World War One um, was yeah was definitely a huge hit to the English economy. I mean, part of it was losing the colonies in the Americas. Yeah, um, that was kind of a big economic hit. Uh, yeah, and then kind of over the course, and also over the course of like the early 20th century, England started to lose a bunch of its colonies, like India yeah. gained its independence, um, you know, occupied parts of China gained their independence. So, yeah. I think gave independence. What do you think about the story of Spartacus? Oh, I love the story of Spartacus. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those really interesting moments in Roman history because the whole point of the kind of enslaved population is that they're not supposed to have political power. They're not supposed to be able to like rise up. Uh, and yet Spartacus managed to like organize this huge army. Yeah, I feel worse. <laughs> Yeah, ultimately it didn't work. Yeah, it's it's going to be hard if it's a, you know, even a large group of slaves against all of the yeah. Roman legions, yeah. you know, and Pompey the Great. Yeah. <laughs> so. It was very, like, very good story, though. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the, HB, the HBO or the stars? Whatever. Oh, I, f I forget who did it, but I, I actually haven't seen it. Yeah, it's one of those ones I have to watch. It's uh, it's very good for the first couple of seasons, and the ending, how Sparka dies, uh, it's probably true about actually happened, but it's very like, on like you wouldn't think it's how he would die. Kind of anticlimactic. And <laughs> very anticlimactic. Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I've heard. I've heard that like watch the first two seasons, and then maybe maybe leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> What was that maybe Russell Crowe did with Gladiator? Was it Gladiator, I guess? Yeah, Gladiator. Was that based off anybody historically? I That I don't know. I actually, that's another movie that I teach um, that we kind of analyze. Uh, and I don't know if that was based on anyone real. I don't think so. I think that's an invention. I mean, I think in, in part it's inspired by Spartacus. Yeah. Um, and this idea of like the Gladiator revolts. Um, and definitely like the, the stories of the Imperial family, like Commodus being a little bit crazy and wanting to like fight in the ring as a gladiator. That's true, at least according to contemporary Roman accounts. Um, so there's, a, you know, there's a lot of foundation of truth in the story, but I don't think that's based on, on like an actual person. Listen. <clears throat> I love like stories of crazy mad kings. <laughs> there are lots. <laughs> What's your um favorite grim story tale? Oh, um, I really like Snow White. Oh yeah, that's the one I'll kind of go back to because there's a lot to that one. Um, I mean Cinderella is kind of cool too. But I think Snow White is the one that I like. I will read forever. 
I need to read the. I need to get a refresher on the original story because I'm thinking of the the Disney version. I think it's. Really oh yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, the Disney version's pretty different. <laughs> yeah. What's frustrating about the the original one is in the Disney one, she just like gets the apple. That's the first time she's ever been tricked. Yeah. You know, and she like eats it and blah. Um, but like in the original story, she gets tricked a few times. Like she gets given a poison comb that like knocks her out. She gets given, I think, laces for her dress that like knock her out. And then like she gets offered an apple and it's like, girls, stop taking things from people. (laughs) (laughs) So like the actual original story is a little bit harder because it's like she keeps getting offered things. And then when she takes them, they try to kill her. And yet she keeps taking the things. Yeah, uh, yeah, and like in this Disney movie, it's pretty frustrating because like it's supposed to be like I guess lover's first kiss saved her, I guess. But that was the first time that the prince ever seen her ever. Right. Like, like why? <laughs> you only know this person. How you love right. her? Right. Also, she's dead. So yeah. <laughs> like, a little it, weird. <laughs> yeah, a little necrophiliac. Yeah. <laughs> So where can people find Enchanted Podcasts? Uh, people can find Enchanted really anywhere they listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, all the major podcast platforms, or they can go to enchantedpodcast.net. Awesome. Where people can find you, yeah? Yeah, that is, yeah. If you want more information about the show, everything's up on the website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much. It's really fun. Really fun too. I'll welcome on anytime again. All right, thanks. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.